0: All right, uh, so there was, there was a period of my life uh, where I was going to funerals a lot. A lot of my relatives were dying, and they weren't just dying uh, simply of, of getting older and, and the different ailments that happen to us when we're older, but just my rel- a, a good number of my relatives uh, started dying. And so it was almost like every year I was going to a different relative's funeral. And so I, I really got to see a lot of funerals. I got to see how a, lot of, uh, how a lot of people were celebrated at those funerals. And then since then, since that period in my life, those were kind of like my high school years, uh, I, I've had another, you know, just handful of, of relatives, of friends, of acquaintances uh, all, all die. And so I'm, I'm at their funerals. And so when you, when you find yourself At a a lot of funerals, you find yourself thinking about all kinds of stuff. You're thinking about your own mortality. You're thinking about life. You're thinking about this person that you knew that is is no longer with us. And so, and and you kind of even kind of start seeing how people talk about uh, people at funerals. And and one thing that I noticed at funerals, and I I don't think this is a bad thing, and this might sound a bit irreverent, but one thing I noticed at funerals is that there's kind of this common practice in our culture that we're never going to speak ill of the dead. Like, we'll, we'll just never speak ill of the dead. And I think that's probably a good practice. But sometimes I'd be at these funerals, and I'd know the person who died, and I'd know that they were just not the best. Like, they weren't the best person, like how they had treated me or how they had treated others. And so I'd sit there in these funerals, and I'd just go, man, we're saying a lot of things, and it just feels fake to me, right? And again, I, I, and I mean this genuinely, I struggle with bitterness and unforgiveness, so I think that's part of why my mind goes there when I'm at these kinds of funerals. But I'd be sitting there and I'd be hearing all of these kind of, all of this flowery language about some of these people that I knew that had hurt me or hurt others in my family or hurt people I knew and, and were saying all these kind of just fake nice things and it would just kind of bother me. It just rubbed me the wrong way at those funerals. And again, I think some of that is my lack of forgiveness, What I love about the Bible is it's brutally honest about people after they die. When someone dies in the Bible, it it doesn't really mince words. It doesn't go like, well, now we're going to use all this flowery language to describe that person. The Bible will give you a realistic picture of who that person is. And today, we're going to be ending our We Want a King series. And the way that this series has gone is we've been looking at the first three kings of Israel. We first looked at King Saul, then we looked at King David, and then last few weeks we've been looking at King Solomon. And today, Solomon dies. And Solomon leaves behind some legacies that are just not great. But what I love about the Bible is the Bible is super honest about those legacies. The Bible is saying this is what Solomon left behind for the people of God, and it wasn't great. And so that's what we're going to be doing today as we end this series. We're going to be looking at the end of Solomon's life, and we're going to see these legacies he left behind. And so here's the structure of today's sermon, three parts for us today. The first part of the sermon, we're going to be in 1 Kings 12. We're going to be looking at these legacies that Solomon left behind. The things that he left after death for, for his son, for the people of Israel. And we're, all of them that we are going to look at today are negative things. So we're going to look at three negative legacies that Solomon left behind. And then we're going to spend some time looking at who God shows himself to be in First Kings 12. When you read these kind of messy or sinful chapters in the Bible, it can be easy to go, I don't know if I'm seeing God in the midst of this or not. But God reveals himself, re- reveals part of his character in this. And so we'll spend a few minutes looking at who God reveals himself to be in First Kings 12. And then we're going to end by looking at Jesus's lineage. So that's where we're going to go today. Before Uh, we hop into 1 Kings this morning, let's let's talk about where we last left Solomon. So if you weren't here last week, what we saw in Solomon's life is he became the biggest, baddest king around. All kinds of kings uh, and royalty and even queens were coming into his life and just honoring him giving him gifts and so Solomon starts marrying women of all sorts of royalty in other countries and all these kinds of things and and what ends up happening is Solomon turns from the Lord he starts worshiping the gods that his wives worship and he starts even building worship centers to those gods in Israel and if you remember the Israelites if you remember the Bible the first 2 of the Ten Commandments is like, hey, don't do that. Like, please don't do that. And yet here we have Solomon doing that. And so the Lord says to Solomon, hey, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. But because of your father, David, actually, I'm not going to take the kingdom away from you. I'm going to take it away from your son. And because of the promise I made to your your dad, David, I'm actually not going to take the whole kingdom. I'm just going to take the vast majority of the kingdom and just leave one of the 12 tribes of Israel with your son. And so that's where we last saw Solomon. What he's been up to in the rest of 1 Kings 11 before he dies is really three different men rise up as enemies uh, of Solomon. And, and Solomon kind of ends his days combating these different enemies that he has. Their names are uh, Hadad, Razon, and Jeroboam. Okay? And Jeroboam is going to come up in 1 Kings 12 today a lot. And it seems that the author bringing up these enemies is trying to say something like, these are precursors to what God's going to do uh, to fulfill the the discipline that he said he was going to bring to Solomon. So that's kind of what Solomon's been up to. Let's read the last two verses of Solomon's life in 1 Kings, verses 42 and 43 of chapter 11. It says this, And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, let's stop there. So Solomon reigned 40 years, then he dies. And and where the story is going today is with Solomon's son, who becomes king, and Solomon's son is Rehoboam. There's a two different Bohem names today, so we could, get, we could get confused. And so Solomon's son is Rehoboam. There's, I don't know how, there's no easy way to remember that. So uh, Solomon's son is Rehoboam. He becomes king over Israel. And right now, as we're going to get into uh, 1 Kings 12, we're going to see the sort of legacies that Solomon leaves behind. And right away, we see the sort of legacy that Solomon left behind to his son Rehoboam. And I'll tell you what it is. It's a legacy. The first legacy he leaves behind is a legacy of a heavy yoke over or on the people of Israel, okay? So let me, uh, let me read the story. Jeroboam, one of the enemies of Solomon, he shows back up in the story, and a lot of Israel kind of used him as a leader. He must have been kind of this kind of charismatic activist, maybe even revolutionary-type leader. But verse 3, we're going to read 3 through 11, and then jump down to 15. This is this. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they'll be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old man gave him, and he took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, "What do you advise that we answer the people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young man who had grown up with him said, Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my dad's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Let's hop to verse 15. So, the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs, brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Sholonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. All right, let's pause there. So, apparently... To have the biggest, baddest kingdom around, Solomon had to put a heavy yoke on his people. And this is something we didn't get to spend too much time in. But you could go to 1 Kings 9, and what you'll see is Solomon, to build this temple, to build this great kingdom, to build his palace, he put a heavy yoke, a heavy burden of forced labor, of slavery, on the people of Israel. And so they had this, a lot of this forced labor from this king to build all these things. So, that's part of the legacy that Solomon leaves behind, is this heavy yoke. So, when Rehoboam becomes king, the leaders of Israel come to Rehoboam and say, Hey, your dad left this heavy yoke. I don't know if we need it anymore. Could you lift the heavy yoke off of us? Rehoboam says, give me a few days to think about it. He goes to his father's advisors, older men, and he says, What do you guys think I should do? And they go, yeah, it was a pretty heavy yoke. I think you should listen to them. Like, take off the, the yoke. Rehoboam doesn't listen to the wisdom of his elders. So he goes to the rich kids he grew up with, and he says, what do you guys think I should do? And they say, whip them up, dude. <laughs> like, just go hard. Like, you, they, the heavy yoke worked for your father. You bring a heavier yoke, Rehoboam. And so surely that's what Rehoboam does. He... he, he it, puts a heavier labor force on them. He disciplines them, uh, not just with whips, but with scorpions. Uh, authors and Greek, or, I mean, Hebrew scholars debate was this literal animal scorpions. I don't know, they're just like throwing b- out of a bag at them. I don't know what is happening. Or it was probably, I, this is probably what I think, it was a, a more like deadly whip, like a more painful whip that w- had like, maybe glass shards on it, something like that. And so this is what Rehoboam decides to do. And we see that this is part of Solomon's legacy. He left a heavy yoke, and this heavy yoke did a lot for Solomon. So when his son, Rehoboam, gets the chance to take away this heavy yoke, he says, no, my father left this legacy of a heavy yoke. That worked for him. I don't want to seem soft compared to him, so I'm going to leave an even heavier yoke. I'm going to have an even heavier yoke on you people. But this legacy of a heavy yoke, it leads to the next part of Solomon's legacy, which we already knew was coming because of what God said to Solomon last week. But the next part of Solomon's legacy that he leaves is a legacy of division. And it's kind of brought about by this heavy yoke. Let me read verse 16. And when all Israel... Saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. Okay, so Rehoboam says, Hey, my my pinky is thicker than my dad's thighs, a weird way to put it. But he says, My pinky's thicker than my dad's thighs. Here's the heavy yoke. And the Israelites go, Okay. Who cares about this King David stuff? Like, we don't need a king in the lineage of David. Everybody go home. So, when they're saying, Go to your tents, O Israel, they're saying, Everybody go home. Everybody. No call, no show. We're doing no call, no show together. Labor strikes. So they go home. They go to their tents. And they said, we're going to figure this out. The king's not going to put this heavy labor on us. And you begin to see this division fomenting uh, among the people of Israel, this legacy of division that Solomon left them. And so Rehoboam, the king, he sends a particularly harsh slave taskmaster to go there and throw bags of scorpions at them or whatever. And on the way there, to the tents where they're hanging out, uh, they just kill him. They stone the guy. Rehoboam goes, okay, I think, uh, I think I might be in trouble. I think a revolution might be happening. So Rehoboam, he goes into hiding. And so the rest of Israel, who didn't want this yoke, and they resisted it by no call, no showing, not working, and then they kill this slave taskmaster. This is what they do next in the story, verses uh, 19 and 20. So... Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. So Israel says, okay, Rehoboam's not our king. Let's get that guy Jeroboam. The, the charismatic activist guy, let's make him king. And so they make Jeroboam king over the rest of Israel. What God had said to Solomon is all coming to fruition. The kingdom is divided, it is stripped away, and Rehoboam, his, the king in David's lineage, son of Solomon, he's left only with the tribe of Judah. Solomon has left behind a legacy of division because of how he turned to all these other gods. So Rehoboam, he musters up the tribe of Benjamin too and the tribe of Judah and they say, "Hey, let's go. Let's go fight these guys. This is a civil war. We got to take care of this. We got to go to a civil war and take the kingdom back for us." And and we see what what the Lord speaks to them in verse 24 as they're about to go start this civil war with the rest of Israel. Thus says the Lord you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. So, in the midst of all this division happening, Rehoboam thinks the only way I can solve this is if I go to a civil war, reunite the kingdom through war. But God speaks to Rehoboam, The tribe of Judah, and the tribe of Benjamin says, don't, don't do this. This is, I'm orchestrating this. I'm behind these events. This is, uh, as if God is saying, I'm doing this because of what I said to Solomon. And so we see very in depth that Solomon leaves this legacy of a hard, heavy yoke. And now uh, this legacy of division amongst the people of Israel. So they listen to God, they don't go to war. Uh, And then we kind of see how Jeroboam acts as king in the next part of 1 Kings 12. And we see another part of Solomon's legacy left as king. We see a lot of what Solomon did. He leaves this legacy behind and the kings uh, really take on this legacy of Solomon's. And one of those things that Solomon leaves behind, the last thing we'll look at of his legacy, is a legacy of confused worship. And so Jeroboam, who's king over the vast majority of Israel, let's see what he's up to in verse 26. And it says this, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who, you brought, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. We'll stop right there. So Jeroboam becomes king, and he's worried about the temple situation. Because this temple of the Lord that we've looked at in depth in this series is in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is in the the region of Judah, so Rehoboam is kind of king over the temple of the Lord. And Jeroboam knows people are going to keep going to the temple of the Lord to worship there, and he's worried if they worship there enough, they'll go, you know what, Rehoboam's not so bad, let's make him king again. Maybe this is the right way to do things. In fact, he has the temple of the Lord, that makes sense. And so Jeroboam takes this legacy that Solomon left behind of confused worship, and he uses it in order to uh, unite the other ten tribes of Israel. He decides to uh, reinvent, really, a religion. And so he makes worship centers, and he he builds these two calves reminiscent of of the Exodus story. And in fact, if you read 1 Kings 12 and you compare it to the Exodus story, you're going to find a lot of weird similarities uh, between those two stories. And so Jeroboam builds these two calves for for the people of God to worship. Again, the first two commandments, don't do this. Jeroboam, I'm going to do it. And, the, and he puts worship centers all over the region of Israel, so anyone in Israel can go to these places instead of to the temple of the Lord. And he sets up actually a whole different priesthood, and he sets up a part we didn't read, a whole different festival system, and, and all of these different things. And we see this legacy that Solomon left behind of confused worship is now being passed on to Jeroboam. Jeroboam is probably confused about his own worship because Solomon was confused about his own worship. This was part of the culture of Israel that Solomon brought about. And so he, he, he does what Aaron, Moses' brother did, and he makes these calves. I actually like... Uh, how Jen Wilkins talks about what uh, Aaron was doing here. And I think what Aaron was doing is the same thing we see Jeroboam doing here in this passage in building these two calves. And, and look at uh, what uh, Jen Wilkins notes is happening. The quote will be on the screen. She says this, One of the principal deities of Egypt was the bull god Apis, the supreme, and the supreme head of the Canaanite pantheon was the bull, bull god El. Bull worship was all the rage in the region. But it is a knobby need calf, not a raging bull, that Aaron manufactures. When Aaron conceives of Yahweh of his own imagining, he produces a non-threatening, approachable version of the principal gods of the surrounding regions. And so do we. And Jen Wilkins says this in her book, Ten Words to Live By. And, and the reason I'm re- reading that quote is because it seems like Jeroboam does the exact same thing. Instead of one calf, he has the two calves that represent these other gods. It seems like Jeroboam is saying, what are the gods of our region? How can I make those gods more palatable to the people of Israel? This sounds like Solomon, right? This confused worship that Solomon brings about, building these other worship centers. Or Solomon, early in the story, he's like worshiping God at the wrong sorts of worship centers and, these kinds of, and worshiping God in all these confused ways. And Jeroboam said that's part of his playbook. He makes these two calves less threatening than the bull gods of the region that perhaps the Israelites were afraid of those gods and said, no, this is, we can worship these, these calves. It's this legacy of, of confused worship spreads throughout Israel, and I think it spreads throughout the people of God today. This isn't the point of my sermon, but I just think we should think, how often do we take the metaphorical bull gods of our culture and turn them into not need calf gods that are much safer and friendlier and worship those and baptize them in the name of Jesus and say that they are our God or God wants us to worship those things. I think too often. I could probably do a whole sermon just on that, but I won't. Just promise me you'll do the work of examining how you're doing that yourself and, and turn from repent from that. Turn back to Jesus, the God of the universe. And so this is what Solomon leaves behind. This is the legacies that Solomon leaves behind. He leaves behind a, a heavy yoke. He leaves behind division. And he leaves behind uh, confused worship. And you're just kind of going, man, this is depressing. And yet, in the midst of First Kings 12, you actually see God show up a couple times. You see God uh, reveal himself in some particular ways that help us to see who he is. And so I want to spend a, a few minutes here just looking at who God reveals himself to be in 1 Kings 12. I never want to gloss over that stuff. And here, here's essentially who he reveals himself to be. He is a God who's guiding the whole process. Of everything that's going on in 1 Kings 12, he is showing himself to be a God who's guiding the whole process. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, the turn of affairs that led to this whole heavy yoke debate, that turn of affairs was brought about by the Lord. And then if you look at verse 24, when he's saying, hey, don't go to civil war, he says, don't go to civil war because this thing is from me. And so we get a glimpse. We get a glimpse in this passage into the power of God here into who he is, how he runs the universe, how he runs humanity. And the glimpse we get of God is this. God is sovereign. Another way to put this, God is in control. Another way to put this, God is the author of history. Now, now we have to to be careful whenever we talk about this big idea about God that you're going to see throughout the whole Bible. That we're not communicating that humans are robots or his puppets. In in the Bible, it's also clear that what we do matters. That we are responsible for our actions and our sins. But when you read the Bible, you are often going to run into the sovereignty of God. And often, it's going to alarm you just like it might in this passage. It's probably much more palatable for us to think that sinful humans and their sin is like totally outside of God's power in some way because that's how he made things. But what you're gonna run into when you're reading scripture, when you're reading the Bible, is a God that's less palatable than that. Now, he's not to be blamed for sinful actions and behaviors. But somehow, God is sovereign over the sinful actions and behaviors of humans. I know that's hard for us to, to wrestle with, but I'm just trying to point out what I see throughout Scripture. Right? One author says he's sovereign over Rehoboam's stupidity, even. And yet, Rehoboam, he's still to blame for his own sinfulness and, and stupidity. And again, we have to be careful here when we look at the sovereignty of God uh, because the sovereignty of God, it's a complex thing and Christians and theologians over the last 2,000 years in particular have uh, pontificated about this. They have argued about this. They have tried to understand who God is revealing himself to be. And so I, I don't want to claim like, oh man, I ha- I've got the hold. I really understand God's sovereignty. Like, I think this is one of the hardest things to understand about God. And it would be easier for me to just skip this part of the sermon. But I do want us to see that this is how God reveals himself in Scripture. As the ultimate guider of history. And even sin comes under his rule in some way. In some mysterious way where he's not to blame for it. And we can't get out of our our blame in it. And I think the, the author of Kings here, he is trying to point out in particular that, uh, that God is bringing about what he said he'd bring about to Solomon. That God has said, hey, I'm going to do these things, and now he's bringing about them in the life of Rehoboam just like he did. And so we, want, we also have to be careful not to go too deep trying to say things the author isn't saying about God's sovereignty here. But it's still good for us to see that the God of the Bible— Presents himself far bigger than we want him to be a lot of times. And one of the ways that he is far bigger than we want him to be is he shows that he is a God that is sovereign and in control over everything. And so that's who God shows us himself to be in this chapter. And so this is, all together, this is how Solomon's life ends and the legacy he leaves. It's all there in 1 Kings 12. It's a chapter that's a mess of division and confused worship. And yet there's this picture of God's sovereignty there that's, I think, beautiful. But as we get to the end of the series and we get to the end of Solomon's life, I'm just kind of left thinking, no king is enough. No king is enough. Right? We had King Saul at the start. He was the ideal king, at least in looks. He was who the people of Israel wanted. He was who they picked out. He was big. He was taller than everybody. He was strong. He was good-looking. And he was not enough. Okay, so then we get David. David, who's the king after God's own heart. David, who is like God's choice for king. David's not enough. David has all kinds of failures as a king and all kinds of sins that he does and, and leaves behind. He's not enough. Now we get to Solomon. Solomon, who we've looked at the last five or so weeks, and he's been given supernatural wisdom to rule Israel. He has a superpower. He's still not enough. Like, none of these kings are enough. None of these kings can rule Israel the way that God wants them to rule. None of these kings can rule us the way we would want to be ruled. And it's interesting, David, Solomon, and Rehoboam, they actually come up in, this, in the story of the Bible again. David a bunch of times. But they come up together, linked together again, later in the biblical story. There's the start to the, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And it starts with this genealogy of Jesus. Looking into the ancestry uh, of Jesus. And it mentions all kinds of people. But three of the people, three of the like, 24 people or whatever it is that are mentioned are David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. Three broken, sinful men that left behind broken, sinful legacies. And the genealogy in Matthew, it does a a number of things for us in relation even to this series and what we've been learning. One of the things is it, it points out that God kept his promise to David. That he would one day bring a king in David's line that would sit on the throne forever. That's one thing it does. But another thing this genealogy does is it points out how sinful the ancestry of Jesus is, how messy the ancestry of, of Jesus is. He, he comes from a broken, sinful lineage. And if you've been paying attention to the the kings that we've been listening to and their sons in in this series, what you have probably noticed is it seems like these kings pass their sin on down to their sons. Have you noticed that a little bit in the series? Like David seems to pass his lust on to Solomon. Solomon passes on this heavy yoke to Rehoboam. And we could probably go down the line of the rest of the book of 1 and 2 Kings, the books of 1 and 2 Kings, and see how very often almost each and every king passes on some sort of sinful legacy or heritage. And that happens to us too, right? The the things I struggle with are the things my grandfather struggles with. The things I'm prone to sin-wise are the things my grandmother was prone to sin-wise. Over the, over the last number of months, I, I've been in therapy, and a lot of pastors say this is like a virtue signaling thing. I promise, I don't think I am. But because I've been in therapy, I, I, it, it gets you thinking about your lineage. It gets you thinking of the people behind you, the peop- your father, your grandfathers, your mothers, your grandmothers, and, and what they've passed on to you, and what sort of family of origin you come from. My mom, she, she retired in the last year or two. And and two years ago, my dad was uh, diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so my mom has been really reflective on her life, on the sort of lineage that was left to her from her parents, the sort of lineage that her and my dad have left to us. And so a lot of times I find myself the last two years in conversations with my mom, just talking about these things, talking about what it was like uh, growing up. In my house. And so I've been doing I've been doing a lot of thinking about this idea of of what our lineage passes on down to us. And a lot of times it passes things on to us that we we don't want. At least maybe I'm alone in the room. But the things, a lot of the things that have been passed down to me, I don't want. I wish weren't in my life. And we've seen that that happens in the We Want a King series too with these kings. And recently I was at this conference, it was actually the sexual wholeness conference that a lot of people from our church went to and Redemption put on together as a whole. And at this conference, this uh, psychological term or therapist term came up that I hadn't heard before, and it was this term called a transitional character. And it was this idea of this person in a lineage that is a transitional character. And so I want to quote what that, I want to define what that is by quoting Dr. Carl Fred Broderick, Who is a psychologist and a family therapist, among other things? How he defines what a transitional character is. Here's what he says the words will be on the screen. A transitional character, a person who, in a single generation, changes the entire course of a lineage, who somehow finds a way to metabolize the poison and refuse to pass it on to their children. They break the mold. Their contribution to humanity is to filter the destructiveness out of their own lineage so that the generations downstream will have a supportive foundation upon which to build protective lives. It's a beautiful thing when a transitional character shows up in a lineage or enters a lineage. That transitional character, they rebel against the habits and sins of their forefathers and their foremothers. And when you read kings, you realize there have been very few, there are very few transitional characters as the kings. Most of them were not. And so sin, amongst the people of Israel, amongst the kings in particular, keeps getting passed on down. And when I look at my own lineage... I feel the pain, sometimes, of a, of a lack of transitional characters. I feel that pain. And I'm left thinking, I, I want a king that was better than what these kings left me. I want forefathers and foremothers that left me something better that were transitional characters. And I'm real, I realize Jesus is the ultimate transitional character. In his lineage, it's noted he comes from David, he comes from Solomon, he comes from Rehoboam. But Jesus is the transitional character that will not let the poison of sin be passed on. He is the transitional character that is king and can stay on the throne as a good king forever. He breaks the mold of the kings of Israel before him. And now, he's so powerful of a king, he's so powerful of a transitional character, that now you and I, downstream from Jesus, we can live as transitional characters in our own lives. Because through the cross, and the resurrection, and faith in that king, we have that king's spirit in us now. That's what he gives to us. Jesus is the ultimate transitional character. Church, we want a king was the cry of Israel's hearts. At the beginning of the series we looked at it. they said, "Give us a king, God. We want to be like the nations around us." And what we've seen in the series time and time again, "We want a king" is the cry of our hearts too. And what we often do is we find weak and other unworthy kings to rule our hearts may we see at the end of this series that it's not wrong for us to want a king, we just have to realize there is only one king that can give us what we actually long for. And that's Jesus. The ultimate transitional character who has passed on a legacy of love and forgiveness and redemption and resurrection to us. Church, may we cry out for that king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. Father God, we love you. Help us to reflect, God, even this morning on on the things you've taught us from this series. Help us to see the mirror that these kings are for us, God. I think it could be easy for me to just judge these kings and say, I would never do that. And I'm missing some of the point of what you're trying to communicate to show me the mirror of my own sin at times. So God, may these kings be a mirror to us for the rest of our lives. But God, also let us see the good news of you and your character and how you are all throughout these sinful and broken stories. May we see that this book of kings isn't the end of your story, God. That you brought about your son to be everything we need, to be every kind of king we need. And so God, I pray that this morning as we are thinking through this, as we're reflecting on this, that, that you do something in our hearts that causes us to allow you to be king over our lives, God. That we resist your kingship, God, even though you are the only true Good, holy, kind, loving, forgiving King. And so, God, this morning, I just pray you do a work in our hearts. You leave us with what you want to leave us with in this series. Thank you for your good King, your son that you gave to us. Thank you that he is already ruling on the throne. May we realize that that is true. May we live into that as citizens. Of his kingdom. Lord, we love you and we need you. Amen.